trigger warning. This case deals with violence against a child. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl. Two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. Cheers, Crimecasters. The case we are covering today begins with the report of a carjacking, then leads to the disappearance of a little girl. It involves a very distraught dad, but there's so much more to this Motor City mystery. Ronnie, this is a case we continue to debate heavily. Mainly because the central figure of the case, Bianca Jones, is still missing. She has never been legally declared dead, and her disappearance is still considered an open case with the Detroit Police Department. And yeah, her father, DeAndre Lane, is serving a life sentence without the chance of parole for her death. There are so many details to unravel, but let's begin with Bianca's second birthday, November 26, 2011. Bianca lived with her mom, Banika Jones, her grandmother, her uncle, and his girlfriend. But that weekend, she was staying with her dad, DeAndre Lane. Bianca's parents never married, but they were and still are very close friends. They met as young teenagers, a couple of sci-fi geeks who shared a passion for all things Star Trek, not very common for young teens in the hood of Detroit. They dated on and off through the years. Benika joined the military, moved away. While the two went their separate ways, they always stayed in touch. That first love bond just couldn't be broken. Alicia, for so many of us, we remember that first love. Do you remember yours? Oh, absolutely. It was my next door neighbor, Mikey, and I fell in love with him because he let me uh, lip sync Madonna all day long. And it was just true love. (laughs) Okay, with that, (laughs) sometimes relationships come down to timing. For DeAndre, he got married, divorced, became a father. He was actually engaged to Anjali Lyons at the time. DeAndre and Anjali also had a two-year-old daughter together who was living with them along with DeAndre's seven-year-old daughter. Okay, you know I like to uh, jot down notes and make a timeline, but wasn't Bianca too? I'm doing the math here, and uh, if I'm DeAndre's fiance, I'm not going to be very happy right now. That means so DeAndre and Benika are messing around, obviously. Okay, um, I pretty much feel like you, and I think a lot of women would as well. However, they have how I'm going to put it, a non-traditional relationship. And I only bring this up because DeAndre's relationships become scrutinized, not only by law enforcement, but also in the court of public opinion. But for them, the open relationship works. They support one another, not just in the bedroom, but also with their kids, which is why Bianca was with DeAndre for her birthday, celebrating with those who loved her. They had ice cream and cake every night and went to see Lion King and 3D. Instead of going home, though, at the end of the weekend, Benika had asked DeAndre if he could keep Bianca a few weeks longer, probably until about Christmas time, just so that it would help her with childcare. DeAndre tells me that was the last time he has been truly happy. A few days later, December 2nd, 2011, their lives changed forever. 
It's a school day. DeAndre is on dad duty. 6.45 a.m. He wakes up his 7-year-old daughter and his 15-year-old nephew who had spent the night. They get dressed, eat, brush their teeth, the usual hectic morning routine for parents with kids. 7.30, he wakes up a sleepy Bianca, brings her into the living room, puts on her coat, places her in the car seat. He drapes a pink blanket on top of her to shield her from the frigid winter air. The forehead off in his roommate's car. DeAndre's nephew is the first to get dropped off. Then DeAndre makes the trek to his daughter's school in Highland Park, about 15 minutes away. From there, he hops on the freeway, heads to Banika's house. But first, he has to make a stop at the community college. When he gets to the school, he realizes he doesn't have his briefcase. So he calls his roommate back at the house. Her name's Lisa. And he's like, hey, Lisa, is my briefcase there? She says yes. So he doesn't have the paperwork he needs. And after a short time, he takes off again, and he spots an old school friend of his, Rico Blackwell, walking on the side so he pulls over the two chat for a few minutes exchange numbers with the promise that they'll keep in touch deandre makes his way to benika's house a couple of miles away by now it's about nine o'clock in the morning he gets caught in the downtown morning rush hour traffic so he navigates his way to a side street yeah and if you know heading downtown there's often gridlock so of course you're going to pull off you either use your Waze app or you know the shortcuts i know you use this same shortcut. All the time to avoid traffic. I'm just not a very patient person. And for those familiar with the Detroit area, he's in the North End neighborhood near Midtown. So it's not the best of neighborhoods, but it's also not the worst either. As DeAndre approaches a busy intersection, he says two guys in a red car started blowing their horn and then they pull up next to him yelling, his back lights are out. So what DeAndre does next, he tells me, is his biggest regret in his life and will forever haunt him. Well, it's also what sent up the first red flags to police. Because after being alerted to his taillights being out, instead of driving to his destination, which was only a few blocks away, DeAndre pulls over, gets out of his car, and as he's walking to the back, he says his nightmare begins. In a split second, the front passenger of the red car jumps out, according to DeAndre, points a gun at him, hops into the driver's seat, and drives off with Bianca in the back still. As the car speeds off, DeAndre chases behind, yelling and screaming, my baby is in the car, my baby is in the car. He watches as it gains speed fading into the distance. When he can't catch it, a frantic DeAndre pulls out his cell phone and starts hitting buttons. Hitting buttons? I hope he's hitting 911. Those are the buttons he needs to hit. Well, DeAndre is so panicked. He tells me he just really is hitting buttons. It's like his mind is not working. And remember, he just talked with his roommate, Lisa. That's who he ends up reaching. And while on the phone with her, he runs to Benika's house and pounds on the door. Benika's not there, but her uncle, his girlfriend, and her grandmother are. DeAndre is in such a state, he's so hard to understand. They're trying to calm him. Slowly, they begin piecing together what he's trying to say, which is... Bianca is missing. When they realize he's not talking to police, they are the ones that hang up his phone. 
and call 911. DeAndre can be heard in the background almost moaning as if he is in shock. A Detroit police officer arrives at the house within five minutes. DeAndre is so shaken at first, his answers are incoherent. Officers canvass the area and find the car about 30 minutes later. It's in an alley. The door is open. Keys are in the ignition. It's still running. Bianca's baby seat is in the back without the toddler. And Alicia, I have a transcript of DeAndre's interview with police. It's pretty evident. They questioned his carjacking story from the beginning. Can you read this part? Yeah, so DeAndre says, quote, I told them I shouldn't have got out of the car. I told them I shouldn't have got, I was just trying to protect her and I didn't want nothing to happen. And then Sergeant Moses says, Dre, Dre, you know what's important? Dre, look at me. This is what's important. We need baby girl. We do. We need baby girl. You ain't got to say what happened. Just tell us where baby girl is, end quote. News of the missing toddler hits the hearts of Detroiters. Volunteers organize. They begin searching the alleyways, the vacant houses, and nearby abandoned buildings. State and federal agents join the investigation. All the while, behind the scenes, detectives start putting together a timeline beginning with the night before. They want to know what was happening at home. Well, according to court documents, DeAndre's fiance, Angelie, says she put the kids to bed around 10.30 p.m. on December 1st. And then she hung out with DeAndre and his teenage nephew for a while, and then she went upstairs to bed. She woke up sometime during the night to the sounds of Bianca crying and could hear DeAndre asking the toddler about wetting the bed. Then she heard a couple of taps, which she assumed was DeAndre paddling Bianca. While Angelie later testifies Bianca was crying like she was in pain, she never got out of bed to see if she was okay. Ronnie, you know, I have a very hard time with this because I don't understand how a parent can paddle a child during potty training that he's not used to taking care of. She's in a new situation, so... I hit stop right here. This is a hard part for so many people, and DeAndre admits to disciplining Bianca. He says Bianca had a little diarrhea. Around 1 a.m., she fell out of bed while getting up to go to the bathroom and hit her head on the floor. DeAndre cleaned her up, brought her into the living room to watch her just in case she had a concussion. Lane's teenage nephew backs up the story somewhat saying he and DeAndre did stay up until three or four o'clock in the morning playing video games and during that time DeAndre was trying to keep Bianca awake by standing her up and tapping her with the paddle on her tush eventually putting her back to bed though the paddle keep in mind is a loofah sponge on a stick wrapped in tape to investigators it's a weapon and DeAndre Lane becomes suspect number one Investigators are working against the clock to gather as much information as quickly as possible because Bianca is still missing. DeAndre willingly cooperates, waiving his right to an attorney, allowing himself to be questioned at length. And detectives want to know everything. I mean, are his parents alive? Does he have siblings? How many kids does he have? What about those romantic relationships? Who does he hang out with? And has he ever been in trouble with the law before? And... What they learn sends investigators scrambling. DeAndre's upbringing is anything but roses. When he's 13, his mom dies. His stepdad is a crackhead. 
When he's 15, he gets in with the wrong crowd. They do small-time robberies. And one night, one of the teens that he is with shoots a robbery victim. So, of course, DeAndre gets busted because he's with the group, so he's an accessory. Lane does a couple of years at a youth facility out of state. He returns to Detroit, tries to get his life together, but it's not easy. And he says he couldn't find work, so he turned to selling drugs to survive. In 2003, he gets busted and serves just over two years for possession of a controlled substance and felon in possession of a firearm. DeAndre's felony record is another strike against him. And remember, we mentioned he is a father? Well, DeAndre has seven kids with seven different mothers. And the open relationship he has with his fiancée, investigators discover that open relationship involves sexual threesomes with not only Bianca's mom and his fiancée, but also at times with his roommate, but is any of it connected to Bianca's disappearance? Investigators get search warrants for the car and DeAndre's home. There are no fingerprints found, which is suspicious. The car has been wiped down. And at the house, a small droplet of blood on a pillow matches Bianca's DNA and possible DNA from DeAndre and Bianca on that paddle. Because this is a reported kidnapping, the FBI is heavily involved. And they fly in an expert forensic canine handler and his dogs from London. On December 4th, two days after the initial report, Martin Grimes and his dogs, Morse and Keela, are on the ground in Detroit. You'll recognize his name. First, they go to an enclosed warehouse with 31 vehicles. Morse alerts to the presence of the odor of decomposition in the back seat and trunk of the car DeAndre was driving. Later, the dog hits on Bianca's car seat and her blanket. When they go to DeAndre's house, the dog alerts to the smell of decomposition in the bedroom where Bianca slept and a closet without a door. Ronnie, this is where, obviously, the case goes from bad to worse for DeAndre. If anyone had any doubt DeAndre was suspect number one, well, the use of Martin Grimes and his highly trained dogs was a clear signal investigators were focused squarely on him. If the name Martin Grimes rings a bell, it's because law enforcement agencies around the world seek out his expertise to help them in criminal investigations, very high-profile cases. Most notable, the 2007 disappearance of three-year-old Madeline McCann, the British girl who vanished from a hotel in Portugal while on a family vacation. Yeah, I mean, that case made international headlines and still continues to make some headlines. I believe she is still missing, too. She is, but there is a new suspect over the last couple of years. But just like in DeAndre's case, her parents were also suspects in their daughter's disappearance, in part due to Grimes and his dogs. But it appears the dogs got it wrong. And with this new information, the parents have since been cleared. The FBI took DeAndre for a drive so that he could recreate his route that morning. And like all investigations today, they turned to technology to fill in the gaps. Using DeAndre's cell phone records, they say the route he took them on was off because pings from his phone put him on Detroit's east side near the incinerator. And there was about a 30-minute gap in time that he just could not account for. 
And remember that friend Rico? He testified Bianca wasn't in the back seat, just a bunch of bags. With evidence mounting March 14, 2012, 32-year-old DeAndre Lane was charged with first-degree child abuse and murder during a felony. Police believe Bianca was already dead when DeAndre and the kids left the house on December 2nd and died while being disciplined while potty trained. DeAndre's carjacking story? Well, that was just a cover-up, they say. But is Bianca really dead. DeAndre's seven-year-old daughter testified Bianca's eyes were open, just kind of looking around and didn't talk or make any sounds. His nephew says she was awake, just sleepy. But there are others who swear little Bianca was still alive. Several days after the carjacking, Detroit police officer Nikki Gibbs says she saw Bianca at a house while responding to an unrelated domestic call. Later, when she saw news reports about the missing Bianca, she notified the homicide detective working the case, but says her sighting of Bianca was ignored. In an unrelated note here, that same detective retired shortly afterwards and is now awaiting federal sentencing for a fraud case involving selling non-public police records. And she's not the only one who says that she saw baby Bianca. Months after the sighting by Officer Gibbs, a private investigator working for DeAndre Lane's attorney says he also saw Bianca at the same house. This time, though, she was dressed as a boy with her eyebrows shaved. Despite the sightings, Bianca to this day, has never been found. Her mom, Vanika Jones, believes Bianca is still alive and DeAndre had nothing whatsoever to do with her disappearance. But a jury didn't believe him. And on October 12, 2012, after seven hours of deliberations, DeAndre Lane is found guilty on both charges. He is now serving a life sentence without the chance of parole. He maintains his innocence. Hear from DeAndre Lane himself next. You're listening to Crime Casters Network. We're joined now by DeAndre Lane, Bianca's dad. DeAndre, thank you for being with us. No problem, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. So as a dad, what would be your wishes for your daughter right now if she's still alive? Because you believe she's still alive. Most definitely believe that she's still alive, and my wishes is just that you know wherever she's she is that she's being taken care of, and that whoever has her just brings her forward so she can be returned to her real true family. So as long as she's safe, as long as she's safe, you know, I mean, if we are able to find her, as long as she's safe, that's that's the only thing that I care about. So DeAndre, so much time has passed since that day. You've had a lot of time to think about this. What do you think happened to your daughter? Where do you think she is? I mean, there's so many different thoughts that go through my mind. I mean, and I, I, like I said before, like I don't like to speculate and, and put stuff out there because I really don't know. And for me personally, I just I just hope like you know, saying it was a situation where. You know, saying somebody wanted a child and they wanted somebody that they could take care of or something. I mean, I, 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 and going through all this, I know about the human trafficking that was going on in Detroit. 
with Major Detroit Canada at that time. I know about, you know what I'm saying, all the different things that go on in the streets. I know people have made reference to my daughter's mom and made reference to her family members and things of that situation. And it's been references made about me. But my whole thing has always just been like, I just hope she's all right. I just hope whoever has her is taking care of her and treating her well and she's safe. And that's just, that's what I try to focus on. Like the other things, speculating about other things, I try not to focus on because even though I strive to be a nice person, I strive to be a good person, if I start focusing too much on the bad, if you think bad, bad happens. And that's even, you know what I'm saying, with respect to your own actions. Because if I start thinking like, oh, somebody might have did this or somebody might have did that, then I'll start holding certain energy towards those people. And I don't I don't really want to do that, especially without any provocational proof. So DeAndre, when it comes to the moment where the car is behind you, they're telling you that you have a brake light out, you pull over. Some people have questioned why would you pull over in Detroit? Well for me, I will say this. That wasn't like a an anomaly for me. It's something that's happened to me before. I've lived in Detroit my whole life, and I know a lot of people have stigmas of Detroit, and even the area in which I was in. But by be, being from Detroit and being I don't look at Detroit the same way as some other people see Detroit. You know, I've seen bad things happen in Detroit, but I've seen bad things happen everywhere. But I've also seen the good and the beauty of Detroit. So this wasn't the first time that I've had a situation with a light being out or you know, saying somebody said, telling me my tire might be flat, you know, or anything like that. So it wasn't something that was strange to me. I mean, looking back on it now, I feel like differently about it. Like, man, like this is like maybe I shouldn't have done it. But at that point in time, early in the morning, it, it didn't. It didn't seem like nothing strange. Did they get any prints off of the car? They said they had found a partial print on the back door, but they couldn't identify the print. They said that there were no prints in the car. So evidently, somebody had to wipe everything down. Because if I'm driving the car, if I'm the last person driving the car, then my prints should be on the car because I didn't have gloves on. When they were doing, when they were tracking and they found the car, they had a dog, a, a tracking dog, that led them to an abandoned building that picked up on a ski mask, took it to the handler. I told them that one of the individuals that carjacked me was wearing a ski mask. They never put that in the evidence. Why? Because it was something that might have been favorable to me. Did they ever get a hit on your clothing? No. Hmm. None whatsoever. Because you and would think that if you handled it. her, you would, they would have been able right. to hit on your clothing. The whole day. From, from that night to that morning. Because the clothes that I had on that night, I had those same clothes on that morning. So that whole time, I was the one handling her, you know what I'm saying? There was witnesses who heard her in the bathroom, no hit in the bathroom. There was witnesses that saw her on the couch in the living room, a leather couch that was in the living room, no hit in the living room. You know, and then the car seat, if you look, if, and a person could research this stuff, you know what I'm saying? This is not something I'm just talking. The person could research this stuff. Mm -hmm. The cadaver dog expert said that when he first let his dog go to find the car seat or whatever, the dog didn't get a hit. When they let the dog go find, try to find the, the blanket, the dog it wasn't a hit. The police then went and opened 
the packaging and put it somewhere else, and then the dog went straight to it. Now, according to the cadaver dog expert, the packaging shouldn't have affected whether this dog smelled or whatever to fit the decompetition on these things. Also, the cadaver dog handler never looked inside the packaging to see what was actually in there. He just wrote down the numbers that was given to him. I don't mean to be nosy, but I'll, yeah. I'm going to be nosy. Uh, that's, that's what I do. But I find um, your relationship, the relationship between you and Benika, interesting, to say the least. Um, number one, the two of you have not wavered in your support for one another. From day one, she's been behind you. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've known each other since we were probably like 13 years old. And I'm 42 now. So, you know, I've known her for more of my life than I haven't known. And throughout everything that we've gone through, you know what I'm saying, we've always had this kindred, this kindredship between each other. Like we've always been these kindred spirits that have had a connection with one another. No matter what we were going through in our personal relationships, you know what I'm saying, we always had that connection where we were always there for each other. We've always supported each other. And in me knowing her and knowing how I am when it comes to my children, like, I would never think that she would do anything like that, that would put my child or any one of my children in danger. Like, even to this day, like, if, she, you know, so my oldest son, she contacts him and reaches out to him. If any one of my other children needs anything, she's like, hey, whatever I can do, let me know. You know, so if, if it was anything that she was trying to do, like, people be like, well, maybe she was trying to get back at you. Maybe she was, like, if it was anything that she was trying to do to get back at me, she would do something to me or it would have something to do with whoever I was in a relationship with at the time. She would never do anything in my eyes, in my belief that would jeopardize my child, especially not a child that's also her child. Right. So in your fight for your freedom, some people feel like it overshadows um, your daughter is still missing. Right. But do you feel like you can't find her if you're still behind bars or you at least can't find the answers that you want? What, what I would say is this. Her and I, our stories are connected. Our destinies are connected. If she was to be found right now today, Instantly, that would negate everything that's going on with me and they would have to let me out of prison. Mm -hmm. If they let me out of prison, if my case is overturned, then instantly they have to actually start putting in an effort to look for her again. Because that's something to me that has never truly taken place. Where you sit, you don't belong behind bars. How do you come to terms with that every day? It's more a thing of like just focusing on the fact of my innocence, focusing on the faith that I have that this conviction will be overturned, focusing on my advocates and the people that are in my corner and being strong for them. Like that's something I've had to do my whole life is I've had to always be strong for everybody else that was around me. So when things would happen, I would always be the one to have to step up and, be, and show that strength and be like, you know, hey, it's going to be all right. And this was the first time in my life that I had ever felt vulnerable. Mm. And I didn't know how to deal with it. 
like literally after this took place, I'm like with if, if my sister was allowed to tell you she'd tell you because I went to her house after everything happened. I couldn't eat. I was like, I was messed up, and I finally kind of came out of it a little bit. To when I started seeing, you know, what I'm saying my other daughter when she came back around, and you know, I said my nieces and nephews they would be talking to me, and it's like I finally had to snap back and pull myself back together because I had to understand who I was with them. Okay, Crimecasters, grab a drink. It's the time of the program where we take you behind the scenes with us and have the real conversations. Ronnie, I don't think we can have the same exact conversations we have um, on the phone each night, but man, we've been talking about this case for years, and I can't wait. I can't wait to get into it. DeAndre seems very nice. I do like him. <sighs> yes. I've interviewed DeAndre Lane several times, and I do like him. I feel myself like puffing up, getting ready to go off, but I'm going to just take a break. So uh, real quick for those, uh, just a quick recap. Let's start there. So it's December 2nd, about nine o'clock in the morning, DeAndre is on the way to take his daughter back to her mother's house to get additional items for her because she's staying with him for the first time and it was just supposed to be for the birthday weekend and it's getting extended until Christmas. And so he needs more things. Now on his way there, DeAndre says, claims that he was the victim of a carjacking. There's a lot of dispute around his story, which we will be getting into. Mm -hmm. However, they did find the car about 30 minutes later, about a half mile away. It was still running. Yeah. The keys are in the ignition. The door is open. The car seat is in the back. No baby. Baby Bianca is nowhere around. And to this day, she has yet to be found. Okay. There is a window here. Should we start with the window? Because there's a time frame that something had to have happened to her. I have a lot of problems with the story, okay? One of my big problems is you're so close to Benika's house. Are you really pulling over and checking your taillights? Is it that important? Because to me, that's, red, that's one big red flag. And that is a hard part for so many people to get over. And in fact, I just got an email from DeAndre a couple days ago because Mm -hmm. I asked him about that again. You were so close. Why wouldn't you just wait until you got to the house? And? And for him, he says, because he had been in an accident before and because he had Bianca with him, he was pulling over to stop and do a quick check. It's not a really bad part of Detroit. It's not the best part, but it's not a really bad part of town either. Okay, and to be clear, this is, you and I probably wouldn't pull over in downtown Detroit if someone was flagging us down, telling us we had a tail light out. You'd probably be like, thanks, wave it off. And you know, 
you're just kind of taught not to stop in downtown Detroit or any area as a single <laughs> woman, right? Downtown, you're probably okay. It's yeah. in the neighborhoods. So, and this kind of works two ways. For people we all know, at one point in time, Detroit had the nickname Carjack City. Right. More, you have stats on that. More cars are stolen in the city of Detroit in a year than the rest of the state of Michigan. So it, okay, I can take this one or two ways. Either A, that's low hanging fruit. Like I got carjacked and everyone's like, yeah, of course you did. You pulled over in, in Detroit. So that is an easy story for him. On the other hand, to someone maybe out in a very safe area somewhere watching this right now, you may say, oh, carjacked. Yeah, that doesn't happen. It happens in Detroit. Happens. In fact, uh, at one point in time, the former chief of police, James Craig, was almost the victim of a carjacking. We've had very high profile people become victims of carjackings in the city. So it's not uncommon in the city of Detroit. And that is one of the questions for the detectives too, though. When you say it raised a red flag, it did with detectives as well saying, hey, you know everyone's carjacked in Detroit. Why would you pull over? Listen, Ronnie, you are one of the most intelligent people that I know, right? And you're the most real person that I know. You tell it like it is. And for some reason, you, I know you started covering this case from the get, right at the beginning. And I don't know how this has happened, but you and I are so on polar opposite sides of this case. Because I, when I hear DeAndre speaking and I hear his story, I don't buy it, but you do. What happened to baby Bianca? What happened to her then? That's what everyone wants to know. So here's another part of this story that doesn't add up to me. You're telling me that in a home where you have two other kids in the bedroom with her. You have a teenage nephew, uh, DeAndre, his fiance. You're telling me that he beat her, she died, and then he pretended like she was alive? Yes. I, and I, no one else noticed. Yes, I 100% believe that because you're not expecting a little girl to be dead. First of all, they're new to her. They don't know her a lot, okay? They don't know her behaviors. But I can tell you, a two-year-old is not going to sleep through the whole morning. And it would. here's what I believe happened. I believe he did. I believe she wet the bed and had a problem and he went off and he paddled her. And then it went too far. And he was like, oh my God, like she's dead. What am I going to do? And then I believe that he went through the motions and he dressed her up in the morning. He put her in a car seat. Everyone said she slept through everything. Put her in the car seat. Put a blanket over her? Well, it's December in Detroit. I don't care. You don't I, put a blanket over the baby, See, a two-year-old who's but, sleeping. But I do remember, I don't have kids, but I remember when my niece and nephew were little tiny babies, you put them in the car seat and She's then you two. would drape. The blanket An over infant, top. maybe. Especially, too, because this isn't a car where you're remote starting it and it's warm and cozy when you get in. Then put all the blanket around her and whatever. First of all, if it's the, if it's so cold and everything's going on, she's going to wake up. You're telling me she didn't wake up. There's kids. There's commotion. There's dad. You're in a new place. She's waking up. 
She didn't sleep through all of that. I believe so she was dead. The 15-year-old nephew, he says she was alive. He says she was alive. Not only that, a few days later, you had a Detroit police officer get a call yes. to an unrelated incident. And she believes that she saw Bianca. And I know you've spoken with her a lot. And so I believe her. She goes to the Detroit homicide detective and she says, hey, I think I saw that girl on the west side at this house. And the detective is like, dad did it. We, uh, I just submitted the warrant for his arrest. Saw her, but didn't see her. Saw her with her eyebrows shaved off dressed no, as a boy. That's later. That's the, oh, she saw her. She her. saw her. Who saw her dressed as a boy? So that's the private investigator. So what happens when Detroit police don't respond, Nikki reaches, I think she actually reached out to me. And at this point, because I went to the house and there was no one there, went back a couple of times. Um, I then told the um, defense attorney, had you heard about this? So he has a private investigator. It's a court-appointed private investigator who is then hired through the courts to help the defense. Because this is um, you know, a court-appointed case. So this PI has no skin in this game whatsoever. For him, he do it doesn't matter whether or not that child is indeed Bianca or not. He investigated and he does say that he believes 100% that it was Bianca dressed as a boy, but they had shaved her eyebrows because that was the one thing about baby Bianca. Her eyebrows were so distinctive. I don't buy it. I, I, I buy maybe one mistaken identity, but two? I want, and I think this is what happened. I want more than literally anything in the world, more than I want my own Sephora store someday, to believe that Bianca is alive. And I think that they're projecting this onto it. It was such a huge case that well, you're projecting. So when we talk about timelines, the other part that doesn't add up to me is you're telling me that within a 20, 25 minute timeline, he comes up with a plan to drop dump the baby somewhere, come no. up with a carjacking story. No. He had all night to plan it. She died the night before. He had the entire night. He probably stayed up laying in bed. What can I do? Here's what, here's no, what I'm going to do. Open, they were up. Travion, his nephew, and DeAndre were up until about three in the morning playing video games. And they had Bianca in the living room with them. And she was alive. And then Travion says that he saw her alive in the morning. But you go forward. Now, do I agree with you 100%? There are some things about DeAndre's carjacking story that doesn't add up to, for me. Thank you. But when you listen to the 911 tape and you see it, he's either a really good actor. Agreed. I think something did happen, and he's not telling the entire story. I went through a phase when I watched his police interrogation where I, where I, I fell for it. I was like, that, this, this guy's trying to find his baby and I was hook, line, and sinker. 
I don't think he did it. Now, I, I can have a whole other debate with you about whether or not he should be convicted of this crime based on what was presented at the trial. Right. My answer is no. My answer is no. So he's serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And I didn't even think there was enough for him to be convicted on the child abuse. I do. But for murder? Because what about his other little girl who testified that he did, he abused her when she wet the bed when she was a little girl. DeAndre Lane has something about bedwetting. He loses his temper. How much do you think his criminal history and his sexual relationships played into You mean this? seven kids with seven different women? People couldn't get over that. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that because there was, there was a lot of drama. You have seven different children to visit it's with seven different mothers. It's not easy, right? But there's all drama. of the women, you would think so, right? So there's gotta be some animosity in there somewhere. And for the most part, everyone says DeAndre is a really good dad. But he's still sleeping with a lot of them. He was sleeping with two of them. Including Bianca's mom. Yeah. There's a lot. There's, um, there's drama. There's a lot going on. There's fireworks. I, I do believe that the fact that a lot of these women still support DeAndre and say he was a great father, then there's something to that. I'm going to believe them. I don't know otherwise. I just know what I heard in trial. I didn't like some of the stories I heard. And I don't like some of the stories about his dealings with Bianca. I don't buy some of it. So one of the things I want to bring up, because this has really been um, a central part of this case, is the use of the cadaver dogs. Mm -hmm. Alicia, I have been covering, you know, homicides in Detroit for way too many years. And at the ATF, you are definitely pro-cadaver. You believe, you I, believe in I cadaver truly, dogs. I, I believe in the dogs as a tool. What I found odd in this situation is, you know, as part of the routine investigation, as soon as the report comes in, they start searching. And one of the things they do is they bring in the dogs to help search. Yeah. So the dog from um, the local dog gets a hit uh, you know, on the car once they find the car and it goes to an abandoned building. But yet, the FBI flies in Martin Grimes from the UK with his two dogs. I can't. It, it, and they're here on the ground within two days from the UK. Makes no sense. I have, why in the world? We have wonderful cadaver dogs, not only in our state, but in the Midwest. What are they thinking? Why are they doing that? They don't have a budget like, I mean, come on. It, it doesn't make sense to me. The ducks are cute. I, I'll give you that. Well, They're, you know, obviously. Spaniels. But the one thing that doesn't sit well with me, if Bianca was dead, why didn't the dogs get a hit in the living room and on DeAndre's clothes? If he's holding her, putting her coat on. I like how you're cherry picking the things they didn't hit on. No. So but they, what did they hit on? So they get a hit on the car and on the um, baby seat, the bunk beds, and a closet, which nothing is really in the closet. 
That may be where he beat her. No, it's a closet with the door off. It, that to me just doesn't make sense. I believe, I totally believe in the use of dogs to aid in the investigation. Right. But I don't believe in this case there were too many differences because it seems like you've got to hit on the other things. I understand what you're saying. So why is it hitting on some? And what's the discrepancy with the first police dog? If that dog is getting a scent and she's supposedly alive and it goes to an abandoned building, then... Couldn't it have just been... Aren't they cadaver dogs, though? Aren't they smelling the scent of death and they trace that to the warehouse? So So there are different types of dogs. So, um, you know, the, the search dogs get the scent of people. But there was no body, there was no baby inside the warehouse, so that doesn't really lead me to anything. The question is, if she is gone, where is her body? If she is alive, where is she living? And I know you and DeAndre have been writing a lot. He's told you a lot of stuff. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we, um, you can email, just so people know out there, you can send an email to a prisoner. Right. It's actually cheaper than sending the old fashioned letters. But when you meet DeAndre, he's soft spoken, mm-hmm. he's well spoken. And do I think something happened? Yes. Do I think there's a piece of this puzzle that he's leaving out? A hundred percent. Did he kill his daughter? I don't know. I I can't answer that. And I will say it's made me not a fan or a lot of my fellow reporters at the time when I voiced my um, you know my thought process of I don't know if he's guilty a lot of my fellow reporters were like girl you are crazy he is guilty as a you know and I was like "Mm, no because there are still so many things that don't add up to me and when we're talking about no body cases they're actually not that rare where people get convicted when a body's not found Mm -hmm. What makes this case so unique is the fact of that window. Typically when you don't find a body, a lot of times it's a domestic violence situation, yeah. domestic abuse, and they have weeks and days. In this situation, the body, right? we're talking about minutes. Just the, incern- the incinerator was always the theory, but you've been there and I've been there and there's, I don't believe there's any way he would have been able to pull up, drop a bot. I mean, it's not like a movie. It's guarded. It's You can't do yeah. it. There, I, I don't buy that. Um, I, again, I pray she's still alive. There's no death certificate to this day. Right. And Strange. it's still actually considered an open missing persons case by the Detroit Police Department. But yet her dad is sitting in prison for life for her murder. Well, coming up, I will debate that part of it because I do believe you on that. I do believe that there is not enough evidence presented in court to convict him life without parole. That's fair. But at the end of the day, do I feel like he did it? I do. I don't buy his story. There are a couple other things that, you know, um, Bianca's mother, Banika, who they call Pinky, she still 100% supports DeAndre. Right. 
And I know people will say, well, she's a mom. She wants to believe her daughter is still alive. They have this very unique bond to me. They were kind of mm -hmm. first loves. So I do find that a little different. It's just different. Yeah. Like you wouldn't suspect that. But there are so many other things like the Rico Blackwell. Okay, he's a friend. First, if I just kill my daughter and she's dead, why am I going to stop on the side of the street? Right. And see an old friend and be like, hey, hi, how are you? He testifies. Alibi. Well, how is that an alibi? And on top of that, Rico's story changes. And one of the things he says, oh yeah, he didn't see Bianca in the car. It was the back seat was full of bags. But yet when they find the car, there are no bags in the back seat. Maybe DeAndre should hire you as his uh, defense. Listen, I want to know what everyone out there thinks. Please weigh in and help us out in this one. This is a crazy case with so many twists and turns. So weigh in on our social media and we will be right back. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. Hi, my name is Ryan Custer. I'm an 18-year-old pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas, and ever since I was nine years old, I've been researching cases, poring over police files, and investigating as many trials as I can, all in the name of true crime. On today's episode of Sidebar, we're gonna be discussing a topic that has been popping up a lot in true crime recently, which is no-body murder cases. When we think of a no-body murder case, we tend to think of a case like the Lane case where the prosecution is presenting a dramatic chain of events that they say proves beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant murdered somebody, despite the fact that they are unable to find any actual evidence of the murder taking place. But most no-body cases are not like the Lane case. What comes to mind is this case of Leisha Hamilton out of Lubbock, Texas, Back in the mid-90s, she was convicted and sentenced to prison for 20 years for the murder of her live-in boyfriend. The prosecution contended that her and a co-defendant, a neighbor, had beat Scott to death in his room in the middle of the night. They didn't find his body until well after Leisha was released from prison, and by that point, of course, she had already been prosecuted and convicted. So how they were able to secure the conviction was they were able to analyze the blood stains in his bedroom. There was a significant amount of pooling and they were, they were able to determine the exact volume and quantity of blood that was needed to make all of this stain. And essentially they had a forensic expert come in and say, blood is connective tissue. So in a way we do have the body and there is so much blood here that it's virtually impossible for this person to be alive. They are dead. Now, of course that's dependent upon DNA matching but these are, in a way, call no body cases, despite the fact that there is evidence of human remains. It's just not a complete body in the sense of the word. So the Lane case stands out to me in that there was no evidence of human remains recovered whatsoever. All you have was cadaver dogs, which, as we know, are not an exact science, nowhere near one, not in the way that even simple physics and chemistry for blood and blood analysis is you're talking a major conviction a major crime without any evidence of human remains whatsoever and that is definitely disturbing and not at all the norm for a nobody murder case all of that being said i have to get back to economics because i am very very terrified of my exam 
So I will see you guys next week on the next episode of Sidebar. Time for closing arguments. One minute, here's why I think DeAndre Lane deserves at least another trial. His fiance, she changed her testimony saying she was afraid of losing her daughter. Police basically forced her into testifying the way that she did. She has since come forward. Rico Blackwell, he changed his testimony and he says there were all the bags in the back. So you're telling me within 15, 20 minutes of talking to Rico, he went and then got rid of the bags and put the baby seat back in the back? Come on. The dog alerts. Why didn't they hit on DeAndre's clothes as well as in the living room and other parts of the home? Plus, let's talk, there was a ski mask that was actually found near the car. It was never taken into evidence. And there was the initial search dog that got a hit on the car, led them to the abandoned building. New trial. Okay, new trial for you. And listen, I'm almost going to agree with you on my closing argument because while I firmly believe DeAndre killed his daughter and that Bianca is no longer alive, just wait. I'm going to speak only about the case presented against him in court. I will argue that he should not have been convicted. This trial reminds me of a movie, okay? The defense did to me give enough reasonable doubt that Bianca could be alive if I'm a juror. The movie was from The Hip with Judd Nelson. Anyone else out there see it? It was amazing. Okay, so Judd Nelson's this hotshot new lawyer, and there's a scene where he's defending a murderer, well, an accused murderer, and he says to the jury, the reason why my client did not do this is because she is still alive, and he points to the doors, and everyone looks, and then nothing happens, of course. The woman was dead, but he gets to say... If you looked, you cannot convict. You have reasonable doubt. And that's what I believe happened in this case. So, Ronnie, I'm going to agree with you on that. To a point. And with that, though, if we could take a moment and recognize Bianca, we so hope that you are indeed found alive and you are happy and you are healthy. And if DeAndre Lane has been wrongfully convicted, we hope this wrong is being set right. With that, we'll be back next week.